0: Hello and welcome to the Roman Catholic Pride podcast where we stand against the pride celebrated by the world and teach the humility of Jesus Christ and His Church. Just a reminder, if you find this content of value, please like and share. It is available on Gab TV, YouTube, as audio only on Anchor FM, Spotify, and Google Podcast, as well as on my website. I've just updated the website and I now have a A podcast page where you can get the latest podcast. You can download them to your own device. Uh, You can save them. You can share them. And uh, they are free uh, and open source for you to use as you please. So please take advantage of that at www.romancatholicpride.com where you'll find all my content. That's the home of the Roman Catholic Pride podcast. So, um, I missed an episode last week. Unfortunately, my life has been a little crazy as of late, and I'm hoping that um, I'm finally getting to a place where things are starting to not be so crazy, and I can continue with a regular weekly podcast, God willing. Um, and so, uh, I ask you to pray for me, and and, uh, and um, I can use all the prayers I can get. <sighs> And as always, pray for Holy Mother Church, too, um, because she is in desperate need of your prayers. Um, So today we're continuing to look at a series of articles that was put out in uh, 2017. Um, This one is part five of the question of papal heresy from March 7th of 2017. And this looks back on the problems of Amoris Laetitia uh, and the promulgating of that um, document, and also the fact that some of what is t- was taught in Amoris Letitia and still relevant today as Pope Francis did name this the year of Amoris Letitia as he likes to celebrate his own heretical documents. <clears throat> and uh, so the uh, article we're going to read today is the question is, um, is Pope Francis heretical? Again, this series of articles was written by Father Jean-Michel Gliese, uh who is a professor at the SSPX's seminary in Econ, Switzerland, for the past 20 years, where he's currently teaching, at least in 2017, ecclesiology. And so uh, we'll, we'll begin with this. I just, uh, one side note on this um, series of of podcasts uh, after this week next week we'll try to get through all of part six but I might split that into two podcasts part six has actually got a part a and a part b to it because it's rather long um, so I'll see how long of a podcast that's going to make and may split it into two parts uh, I'm also considering doing a um, catechism set of catechism Uh, series for children. Uh, If you have any interest in that, please comment or go to my website and email me and let me know if you'd be interested in seeing some um, traditional Catholic catechism classes for children. Um, I know there's some on the internet and I don't like the ones that are out there, so uh, I have been teaching my own son and I think we have a good series as well as uh, I do teaching at uh, my SSPX chapel. So on to the article. The question of papal heresy part five is Pope Francis Heretical Identifying Heresy Calling one's adversary heretical could be polite in a certain ecclesial context that is now past. More precisely men of the church too, whether or not they were theologians, had their repertoire of insults. Invective is found in all times and in all professions. We already find considerable traces of it in the gospel, even on the lips of the incarnate word. One may regret that it has become rare since the last council, and deplore the kid gloves and sugar coatings that prevail now in interconfessional dialogues. The use of insults ought to remain legitimate, provided that no mistake is made about its significance, which will always be limited very often it falls short of its original value and is no more than the last resort of those who have lost all their arguments and just want to avoid losing face. And we are not talking about demonization, which is a form of manipulation on a grand scale. In short, we may be in the middle of rhetoric here and, if you will, outside the field of theology properly speaking. Rhetoric may possibly serve as a support to theology, and that is precisely the basis of its legitimacy, but it could never replace it, much less mask the absence of it. Heretical demands contradiction to define truth. It is different with the doctrinal censure, heretical, the later is a technical expression, part of the terminology, to which specialists resort in order to give as precise an evaluation as possible. The designation heretical corresponds to this precise language that the theologian uses. In this sense, it applies to a person whose acts and words sufficiently manifest a rejection or a questioning of the revealed truth that is proposed by the infallible magisterium of the church. It applies also, consequently, or by extension of its meaning, to a proposition which demonstrably contradicts dogma. Applying this type of designation to a person or to a proposition, therefore, implies that one has previously verified the rejection or contradiction in question. What matters is not only whether or not there is a rejection or a contradiction, what also matters is verifying whether this rejection or contradiction has any precise bearing on dogma. In other words, on a truth that is not only revealed but also proposed, as such, by an infallible act of the ecclesiastical magisterium. That spells out the whole complexity of the matter that is hidden behind the word. The Case of Pope Francis The question that we are asking ourselves here is extremely precise. Does Pope Francis deserve this designation in the eyes of simple theology, as any member of the teaching church can practice it by reason? Of his real acknowledgment, acknowledged competencies? And does he deserve it because of what he affirms in the Apostolic Exhortation, Amoris Letitia? Forty five theologians thought that they were obliged to affirm it. Four cardinals give us to understand clearly enough that unless we, he gives a satisfactory response to the dubia, the Supreme Pontiff could deserve the assignment of such a censure. What can we say? Let us simply take a look at the five dubia presented by the four cardinals, and also at the corresponding passages from Memoris Laetitia, whose meaning is in doubt. In order to be brief, and in order to be as clear as possible, we will formulate the essential idea of each dubia. The first dubium. The first dubium poses the question concerning paragraphs 300 to 305 of Amoris Letitia. Is it possible to give absolution and sacramental communion to a divorced and remarried person who live in adultery without repenting? For someone who adheres to Catholic doctrine, the answer is no. What exactly does Amoris Letitia say? The following passage from paragraph 305 says this, Quote, because of forms of conditioning and mitigating factors, it is possible that in an objective situation of sin, which may not be subjectively culpable or fully such, a person can be living in God's grace, can love, and can also in the life of grace and charity while receiving the church's help to this end, unquote. A footnote reads, quote, In certain cases, This can include the help of the sacraments. Hence, I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. Apostolic Exhortation Evangelii Gaudium 44 I would also point out what the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. Exhortation from the Apostolic Exhortation Evangelia, Gaudium 47. The doubt arises here with the note there is no doubt about the fact that non culpable ignorance of sin excuses from sin. But to those who are victims of this ignorance and thereby benefit from this excuse, the church offers first the help of her preaching and warnings. The church starts by putting an end to the ignorance by opening the eyes of the ignorant of the reality of their sin. The help of the sacraments can only come afterward if And only if the formerly ignorant persons, now instructed as to the seriousness of their state, have decided to make use of the means of conversion, and if they have what is called the firm purpose of amendment. Otherwise, with the help of sacraments, would be ineffective, and it too would be an objective situation of sin. We are dealing here, therefore, with a doubt, dubium, in the strictest sense of the term. In other words, a passage that can be interpreted in two ways. And this doubt arises precisely thanks to the indefinite expression in the note, quote, in certain cases, unquote. In order to dispel this doubt, it is essential to indicate clearly what these cases are in which the church's sacramental aid proves possible, and to state that this is about situations in which the sufficiently enlightened sinners have already decided to abandon the objectively sinful situation. The second dubium. The second dubium poses the question concerning paragraph 304. Is there such a thing as intrinsically evil acts from a moral perspective that the law prohibits without any possible exception? For someone who adheres to Catholic doctrine the answer is yes. What exactly does Amoris Laetitia say? Paragraph 304 citing the Summa Theologiae of St Thomas Aquinas 1 to 2 question 94 article 4 insist on the application of the law rather than on the law itself, and emphasizes the part played by the judgment of prudence, which allegedly can be exercised only on a case-by-case basis, strictly depending on circumstances that are unique and singular. From Amoris Laetitia, It is true that general rules set forth a good which can never be disregarded or neglected, but in their formulation they cannot provide absolutely for all particular situations. At the same time, it must be said that precisely for that reason, what is part of a particular discernment in particular circumstances cannot be elevated to the level of a rule, This passage does not introduce any ambivalence, properly speaking. It merely insists too much on one part of the truth, the prudent application of the law to the point of obscuring the other part of the same truth, the necessary value of the law, which is altogether as important as the first. The text therefore errs here by omission, thus causing a misreading. The third dubium. The third dubium poses the question concerning paragraph 301. Can we say that persons who habitually live in a way that contradicts a commandment of God's law, for example, the one that forbids adultery, are in an objective situation of habitually grave sin? The Catholic answer is yes. Amoris Letizia says on this subject, quote, Hence, it can no longer simply be said that all those in any irregular situation are living in a state of mortal sin and are deprived of sanctifying grace, Two points should be emphasized. The sentence just quoted posists, in principle, the impossibility of making a universal affirmation It does not deny the possibility of saying that public sinners are deprived of grace. It only denies the possibility of saying that all public sinners are deprived of it. This denial has always been taught by the Church. There are, in fact, in concrete human acts, what is called exculpatory or mitigating reasons or factors. Because of them, the sinner may not be morally responsible for the objective situation of sin. These reasons include not only ignorance, but also defects of an emotional, affective, or psychological sort, and paragraph 302 provides the details, relying on the teaching of the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1992. Nevertheless, these mitigating factors, even if they were frequent, which remains to be proved, exonerate the person but still do not put an end to the objective situation of sin. The subjectively exonerated sinner does not cease to be in that situation objectively. By omitting this key distinction, the passage from Amoris Laetitia again introduces doubt here. The fourth dubium. The fourth dubium poses the question concerning paragraph 302. Can we still stay from a moral perspective that an act that is already intrinsically evil by reason of its objective can never become good because of circumstances or the intention of the person who performs it? The Catholic answer is yes. Amoris Laetitia says, quote, a negative judgment about an objective situation does not imply a judgment about the imputability or culpability of the person involved, unquote. That is true, but the reverse is not. And by neglecting to say that, this passage again introduces doubt. If a divorced and remarried person sins, he sins as such, precisely because he is living in an objective situation of a remarried divorce, which is an objective situation of grace sin, as such calling for a negative judgment. If the divorced and remarried person does not sin, it is not as such, but rather precisely for reasons other than his objective situation as a remarried divorcee, which in itself leads to sin. The confusion arises here between the intrinsically evil malice of an act and the imputability of this malice to the one who commits the act. The circumstances of the act and the intention of the one who commits the act can have the effect of annulling the imputability of the malice of the act, but not of annulling the malice of the act. The fourth doubt proceeds from the same sort of omission as the third. The fifth dubium. The fifth dubium poses the question concerning paragraph 303. Can we say that conscience must always remain subject, without any possible exception, to the absolute moral law that forbids acts that are intrinsically evil because of their object? The Catholic answer is yes. Amoris Laetitia repeats here the false confusion introduced already by Francis in his interview with the journalist Eugenio Scalfari. Quote, Interview with the founder of the Italian daily newspaper La Repubblica, unquote, in L'Osservatore Romano, weekly French edition, dated October 4th, 2013. For more on this subject, see the December 2013 issue of the Courier de Rome, the article entitled, quote, Por un Magistere de la Conscience, unquote in favor of a magisterium of the conscience? No one can act against his conscience, even if it is erroneous. Nevertheless, to say that conscience obliges even when erroneous means directly that it is wrong to go against it, but that does not imply at all that it is good to follow it. If the conscience is in error because it is not in conformity with God's law, not following it is enough for the will to be bad, but following it is not enough for the will to be good. St. Thomas remarks that the will of those who killed the apostles was bad. Summa summa Theologiae 1-2, to Question 19, Article 9, said Contra. However, it agreed with their erroneous reason equals conscience. According to what our Lord says in the Gospel, John 16, 2, quote, the hour cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doth a service to God, unquote. This, therefore, is the proof that a will conform to an erroneous conscience can be bad, and this is precisely what Amoris Letizia does not explain, introducing here a fifth doubt. Subjectivism. Root of five dubia. The five dubia are therefore quite well founded. The root of them is always the same. The confusion between the moral value of an act, a strictly objective value, and its imputability to someone who performs it, a strictly subjective imputability. Even though it may happen that the moral malice cannot be imputed subjectively because the person who performs the act is excused from it, which remains to be proved as much as possible in each case. The act always and everywhere corresponds to an objective malice and consequently is at the root of an objectively sinful situation, whether or not it is in fact imputed to the one who finds himself in it. The church's traditional doctrine gives primacy to this objective order of the act's morality, which follows from its objective and its end or purpose. Amoris Letitia, by reversing this order, introduces subjectivism into morality. Is subjectivism negation of revealed truth? Does such subjectivism as understood in its principle as well as in the five conclusions that follow from it here represent the negation of a divinely revealed truth that is proposed as such by an infallible act of the ecclesiastical magisterium? One would have to be able to answer yes in order to conclude that Amoris Laetitia presents a heresy in each of the five points just singled out, and that Francis deserves the equivalent theological designation. In order to establish this conclusion, it would be necessary to verify two things. First, are the five truths demolished by these five doubts so many dogmas? Second, does Amoris Laetitia negate these dogmas, or at least call them into question formally and explicitly enough? The answer to these two questions is far from obvious and certain, for this new theology of Francis, which extends that of Vatican II, avoids this sort of formal opposition with regard to truths, already proposed infallibly by the Magisterium before Vatican II. It sins most often by omission or by ambivalence, it is therefore dubious in its very substance, and it is dubious exactly in so far as it is modernist, or more precisely, neo modernist. Does the Pope intend to affirm or deny? Chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia is defined. Like the others, by the fundamental intention assigned by the Pope to the whole text of the exhortation, which is to gather the contributions of the two recent synods on the family, while adding other considerations as an aid to reflection, dialogue, and pastoral practice, Paragraph number four. Therefore, we find here neither more nor less than matter of reflection, dialogue, and practice. That is not material for clear-cut denial or calling into question. Or rather, if Amoris Letitia became the cause of heresy, it would be in an absolutely unique way, underhanded and latent as modernism itself, in other words, by the slant of a practice and an adaptation more than within the framework of a formal teaching. Practice practical subversion of doctrine. The heresy, if there is one, of Pope Francis, is the heresy of a practical subversion a revolution in deeds and we would certainly say that this is what remained hidden until now behind the new concept of pastoral magisterium now in this area it is difficult to make doctrinal censures indeed censures establish a logically contrary relation between a given proposition and a previously defined dogma and this relation could exist only between two speculative truths belonging to the same order of knowledge the subversion, for its part, consists of eliciting among Catholics behaviors following from principles opposed to the doctrine of the Church. This is how Amoris Letitia, while reaffirming the principle of the indissolubility of marriage, in paragraph numbers 52 to 53, 62, 77, 86, 123, 178 legitimizes a matter of living in the church that follows from the principle opposed to its indissolubility, 243, 298-299, 240, and 301-303. The neo-modernist magisterium reaffirms the Catholic principle of marriage while permitting in practice everything to happen as though the opposite principle were true. How can anyone censure that? Would the note of heresy, understood in the strict sense of a doctrinal evaluation, still retain its meaning then? Finding the appropriate expression In the matter of censures, it is difficult to find the most appropriate expression, and not uncommonly theologians differ in their appraisals. Without intending to state that their insights are false or that appraisals contrary to theirs are true, we would like to draw the attention— of perplexed Catholics to a problem that perhaps is not always sufficiently taken into account. The problem of this neo-modernist characteristic of Vatican II, which proceeds much more by way of subversion in deeds than along the lines of doctrinal heresy in the documents. Conclusive evidence of this problem, incidentally, has just been given to us, as though in spite of himself by the prefect of the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith. When questioned on Saturday, January 7th, by an Italian news agency, Cardinal Gerhard Müller declared that the apostolic apostolic exhortation Amoris Letizia, quote, is very clear in its doctrine, unquote, and that one can interpret it in such a way as to find in it, quote, all of Jesus teaching about marriage, all the doctrine of the church over 2000 years of history, unquote. According to him, Pope Francis is, quote, asking us to discern the situation of these persons who are living in an irregular union, in other words, who do not observe the church's doctrine on marriage, and asks that we come to the aid of these persons so that they can find a path toward a new integration into the church, unquote. Consequently, the Cardinal thinks that it would not be possible to proceed to the fraternal correction mentioned by Cardinal Burke Given that there is in Amoris letitia quote, no danger to the faith, unquote. See his remarks printed by Nicholas Senese in La Croix on january 9, twenty seventeen. In reality, the danger is very real, and Cardinal Burke rightly reacted to this statement by Cardinal Mueller, insisting on the need for a pontifical correction. Not heretical, but promoting heresy. The debate therefore is far from useless, but let us not lose sight of its object. It is not the scandal of a heresy formulated doctrinally. It is the scandal of a praxis that clears the way for a challenge to the Catholic truth on the indissolubility of marriage. To use the words of St. Pius X himself from the encyclical Piscendi, The proponents of the new moral theology proceed with such refined skill that they easily take advantage of unwary minds. They promote heresy while giving the appearance of remaining Catholic. Quote, promoting heresy, unquote. This corresponds to the theological note that Archbishop Lefebvre believed he had to use in order to characterize the harmfulness of the Novus Ordo Missae. Quote, this right in itself, does not profess the Catholic faith as clearly as the old Ordo Missae, and consequently it may promote heresy. What is astonishing is that an Ordo Missae that smacks of Protestantism and therefore favors heresy, it is promoting heresy, could be promulgated by the Roman Curia. Marchbit, uh, Monsignor Lefebvre et le Saint Office. Itineraries, 233, May 1979, pages 146, 1 to 47. Without prejudice to any better opinion, we willingly had recourse to it in order to describe the major problem posed today for the conscience of Catholics by the apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia. And then uh, that's the end of the article as uh, far as the article itself is concerned, though an editor's note was added to the end that I would like to read now. So here's the editor's note. Father Gliese's precise distinction will surprise more than one. In short, it seems that Pope Francis cannot be considered heretical since none of the ambiguous statements in Amoris Laetitia constitute a rejection or contradiction of a truth that is not only revealed but also proposed as such by an infallible act of the ecclesiastical magisterium. However, in the popular use of the word heretical, one who acts and talks in such a way that he encourages evil and favors heresy is considered heretical. Quote, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. Unquote. The popular expression is not a precise theological judgment, it is rather a common way of designating persons or ideas at odds with the deposit of the faith. The theological expression which can be properly applied to Pope Francis instead of heretical is favens heresim, or promoting heresy. That does not change the fact that the Holy Father is ambiguous in his declarations, refusing to clarify them, and, far from correcting evil, promotes it by practical disposition. It is what Father Gliese calls, quote, the scandal of praxis, unquote. More will be discussed in the sixth And final installment of this series, does a pope who falls into heresy lose his investiture in the primacy? So next week we'll cover part six, hopefully both parts of part six, A and B. And so what this really lays out is that Pope Francis isn't heretical uh, in what he's proposing, but he promotes heresy in misleading in the truths of the faith. And this is kind of the error of modernism, the great error, and how they kind of get around um saying clearly heretical things, what they do is they uh, obfuscate by using language that is unclear um and ambivalent. It's it's it hides the truth underneath and so you can come to almost any position you'd like and that's what they do they come to many different positions and depending on who the individual is who's interpreting these words uh... they it in the way that they would like to interpret it so these are some of the problems we face um, as we deal with the modernist church and the modernist popes and so i hope you're finding this series helpful And I hope you will like and share this series, and I hope you will continue following my work, and we will finish up this series next week. And then after that, we're going to look at some um, of the theological positions uh, that um, were drawn out in parts of this series. We'll look at um, St. Robert Bellarmine's um, thesis on a heretical pope and some others, and we'll also look at the set of a contest position and um, some of their thoughts on whether a pope can fall into heresy, and if so, what does that mean for us as Catholics. So again, I beg your, your prayers, and I, and I will pray for all of you, and uh, I wish you a great week, and may God bless you.